Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Chapter 1 of Seminar 17 has great conceptual stuff. As in Chapter 2, the Lacan really starts dipping in to the topics at hand, these four discourses. Master Hysteric Analyst University. You've seen in Seminar 16 how I allude to these discourses coupling, where the master and university discourse couple and the analyst and the hysteric discourse couple. Uh, That's part and parcel of what's happening for Lacan in the 1960s, especially late 1960s, when the hysteric emerges as the protester and the protesters have gone hysterical and so forth. But for our purposes, I think it's important to stick closely to the text and see where Lacan, at the start of Seminar 17, is developing the four discourses and laying them out. And Chapter 2 is kind of like a, a really quick tour de force on these four discourses. So we've got the conceptual work that's occurring in Chapter 1, and then we've got the four discourses popping here in Chapter 2. So let's see if we can work towards these four discourses. The first and foremost one on the horizon, as you've seen, is the master. By first picking up the thread that we were working with last time, conceptual threads. Conceptual threads tracing from A's of various shapes and sizes. Uh, Let's be clear. The question of little a, object little a, is the question of the barred other. And in each case, it's a question of what Lacan calls the way it operates. We are not talking about objects here. We are talking about operations. It's less about the status of objet a as an object, object cause of, you know, than an unpronounceable status that this object sustains in its operation. It's less about the form of objet a than its function. How does this thing operate? And the same is true of the big barred other. It's less about what this thing is than how it works. This question is not a question about what is objet a, but about how it functions. And here's the answer to that question that we heard in Seminar 16 that we want to carry forward into our start of Seminar 17. Objet A functions as a measure or an index of the difference between each repetition of the topology of the subject as it unfolds in what we know as the big barred other. This topology that gets reiterated where each previous iteration of the topology becomes a new S2 to be confronted or to deliver a new S1, and so on and so forth. You've seen this topology before. The big barred other is that topology unfolding iteratively in progressively more encompassing statements of the exact same topology. I won't rehearse this too much, again, because we spent a lot of time with it in our last series, but just to say that 
OpJI is what measures or indexes the difference or the distance between each iteration of that topology. That's what it does. This is part and parcel of what we've always said about OpJI. It marks the minimum irreducible distance between any two entities that allows them to remain distinct. Here it's serving that function again. It is marking an irreducible difference or distance between two iterations of the exact same topology, one progressively more encompassing than the other. That's OpJI in its function as a measure, as an index. These are terms from Seminar 16, but worth us having on display as we start moving into the question of jouissance, which is where Lacan really leaves us in chapter one. What is the nature of this jouissance that the big barred other has access to? And how does this relate to the discourses of the master and so forth? Let's see if we can make some headway here. The big barred other's access to jouissance and make no mistake, that's part of what he's working at here in chapter one. Right out of the gates, he's talking about the other's jouissance. It happens, we said, at the iterative, ever-shifting limit, or the beyond, of what Lacan identifies on page 15 as the knowledge process. Let's see if we can find some passages to support these insights. The big bad passage comes on page 15. And remember, we're ramping up to chapter 2 and the work on the discourses by picking up the thread of some of the conceptual work that we did last time. Check out page 15. Let's read it together. Of course, the form of letters in which we inscribe this symbolic chain is of no great importance, provided they are distinct. This is enough for some constant relations to become clear. So the constant relations that are becoming clear here are in this symbolic chain that Lacan identifies as S2, that is coupled with the symbolic. He's carrying forward a lot of thinking here on language. Remember the stable relations that are differential but also iterative between signifiers that make up language. This is how we describe language last time. It's a differential system of signifiers that through repetition, through repeated use, allow for some sort of meaning to accrue, some sort of meaning to be sustained, to be stabilized. And what you get out of this is a more or less series of constant relations, stable relations between signifiers. That's what Lacan's referring to here at the top of 15. What does it say? It locates a moment. He's talking about this formula that he's been working with. What my discourse subsequently develops here will tell us what the appropriate meaning to give to this moment is. It says that it is at the very instant at which S2 intervenes in the already constituted field of other signifiers, he means S2 here, insofar as they are already articulated with one another as such, that by intervening in another system, this barred subject, which I have called the subject as divided, emerges. Its entire status in the strongest sense of the term is to be reconsidered this year. So here's our basic topology of the subject. And Lacan's keen to talk about here what that S1 does when it intervenes, what happens when it intervenes in the S2, when it links up with this S2. Now, he means intervention very technically here. And at the end of Seminar 16, you see him 
speaking to this intervention where the S1 becomes a foundational element in the first other. It's an interesting move he makes at the end of that seminar. Here he's just keen to remind us what the S1 is doing in relation to S2 at the level of intervention that has a certain effect at the level of subjective constitution. This is what we were talking about last time. We won't spend too much time with it now, but here's a great passage to show you how this works. It's only after and atop this link between S1 and S2, depending on how strongly you mark that intervention, that we then have this other system of the barred subject emerging. It emerges as an effect of this link between S1 and S2, basic concepts of the topology of the subject. Finally, we've always stressed that something defined as a loss emerges from this trajectory. Okay, from the trajectory of S1 to S2 that links up with the barred subject, there's a loss that emerges. This is what the letter to be read as OBJA indicates or designates. We have not left under Unde we have not left undesignated the point from which we extract this function of the lost object. It's from Freud's discourse about the specific sense that repetition has in the speaking being. Indeed, repetition is not about just any old effect of memory in the biological sense. Repetition bears a certain relationship to what is the limit of this knowledge, and which we call jouissance. So, Lacan has this great quip in his previous seminar when he talks about how people give him a hard time when he says there is no universe of discourse, there is no other of the other, when he talks about there being knowledge as always incomplete. And he jokes, he says, people come up to me and say, bro, you've just undermined blah, blah, blah science. You've just undermined blah, blah, blah epistemology. And Lacan's point in response is get real. Knowledge has never been complete. In fact, it's precisely because knowledges are incomplete, because you don't know everything about a particular topic, that knowledge is able to function. In other words, just because knowledge is incomplete doesn't make it any less operational. In fact, just the opposite. It's because knowledge is incomplete that it can be mobilized, operationalized, empowered for better and for worse. And the same is true of the big, barred other. Just because it ain't the big other, just because it's not complete, doesn't make it any less functional. In fact, that's precisely what allows it to operate. It operates precisely by allowing its operativity to break down in certain moments. It thrives on the breakdowns. It works at the level of the limit. And that's what Lacan's getting at here. There's this limit to knowledge. And this limit is what activates the big barred other. And it's activated into a cycle of repetition, where it continually repeats the same topology of the subject, S1 connected to S2 effecting a barred subject, and then the subject coming around and effecting new S1s that disrupt S2. The same shit we were talking about last time. This repetitive structure, though, is the big barred other. And it's activated and sustained by the fact that something keeps dropping out from this structure, a new thing to be known, something that is beyond the limit of any given iteration of that topology of the subject. The big barred other gets off on finding that limit, finding that entity that has dropped out of its previous count, 
and then swelling like a Trojan horse to encompass that entity that was previously dropped out. This process, though, creates a new remainder, a new scrap or corporal remainder that falls out, in turn reactivating the big barred other. Lacan's point here is that that process is repetitive. I've used the word iterative here, queuing up some of the Derridian insights that you can see popping here. I don't think Lacan is getting them from Derrida, although he's acutely aware of grammatology. It's important to note here that this is an iterative, repetitive structure, working by what Lacan refers to as a repetitive necessity. A repetition that produces a difference between its previous iteration, by the way. And that's again what objet A is there for. Objet A helps us mark and track, designate, identify, suss out the difference between any given iteration of the topology of the subject that the big barred other continually repeats in ways that encompass its previous iteration. But like a pebble thrown into a pool of water, you can see the origin of the ripples that come out. And you can see each ripple being an encompassment of its predecessor repetitively. That's more or less the logic that's happening here. At the end of Seminar 16, Lacan wants to talk about, let's talk about what happens when the pebble hits the water. That original ripple, that original blip. We don't need to get into it here. You can track the stuff down. Uh, in the previous series, if you like. What he's talking about now, though, is the repetitive circuit itself and the way that knowledge gets off, read jouissance, at the level of the limit to its current set. Let's call it that. That's why it's a logical articulation, Lacan continues, that is at stake in the formulation that knowledge is the other's jouissance. It's a logical articulation. It's a logical, read structural, read necessary. Lacan thinks like a Kantian. If you don't know this yet about Lacan, this guy thinks like a Kantian. Lacantian. That's why it's a logical articulation that is at stake in the formulation that knowledge is the other's jouissance. And what he means by knowledge here is knowledge as a process, not knowledge as a stable container of things known, a fixed textbook on chemistry. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the conclusion of that textbook on chemistry where it talks about all the shit that biochemists still have yet to figure out. That's the knowledge process, the knowledge process that is always opening up onto a limit some limit to where the current knowledge finds, where the current knowledge finds um, its incapacity, or which is of course its its um, its cause for existence. The other jouissance, the others, of course, insofar as since there is no big other, the intervention of the signifier makes the other emerge as a field. Okay, so check this out. This is a good little paragraph on page 15. We're talking about a logical articulation around this formal repetition, if you will, of a certain structure, the topology of the subject. And that's what's at stake in the formulation that knowledge as a process, as an open-ended process, if you will, is the other's jouissance. 
the big other, the big barred other, gets off, experiences jouissance by activating itself at the limit of any current iteration of its knowledge. The other's jouissance. The other's, of course, insofar as, since there is no big other, the intervention of the signifier makes the other emerge as a field. So the work of S1 and S2 as a kind of articulation of knowledge, it causes the big other to emerge as a field. And here, what Lacan means by the big other is the big barred other. That's why he throws this interjection in here, since there is no big barred other. At the level of the signifier, where knowledge, he says, is scanned by the signifier, we see the big other emerging for what it only ever can be, which is a big barred other. The field of the big barred other emerges in this logical articulation of a certain formal repetition of a certain topology that always opens out into some sort of a limit zone beyond which we meet the unknown. Now, if you got ears to hear, you won't be surprised that in chapter two, Lacan pins the unconscious to this field of knowledge that is unknown. Now, I don't want us to focus too much on that because the, the stakes here are quite a bit wider than that. But Lacan always has recourse to the unconscious when it comes to the limits of knowledge. And you'll see that in, cha in chapter two. Here, we're just working through this key paragraph. You will tell me, no doubt, that here in short, we are still going around in circles. Does it sound like we're going around in circles a little bit? He notices it. He knows what he's up to sounds a little kooky to fools. And you may think that what we're up to sounds a little kooky too, but we're just following the man's lead. Check it out. You will no doubt tell me that we are going around in circles. The signifier, the big other, knowledge, the signifier, the big other, knowledge, and so on. See, people read Lacan and they're like, why is he doing this? Why is he talking like this? This isn't right. People don't talk like this. He's trying to purposefully make shit obscure. He's not. He's doing the best he can to think a certain type of thought that is very difficult to think any other way. Lacan is difficult because Lacanian psychoanalysis is difficult. It's working at some of the most difficult phenomena in lived experience. And he knows that. And here he's telling you like, yo, I know this shit sounds crazy. And I know what you're going to say. But what he's begging you here on page 15, the very start of the seminar, he's like, just stick with me. That's what he wants. That's what he wants is for us to just stick with him. So let's try. But this is where the term jouissance enables us to show the apparatus's point of insertion. In doing so, we are no doubt leaving behind what knowledge authentically is, what is recognizable as knowledge and referring to the limits to the field of these limits as such, the field that Freud's words dare to confront. So a couple of things here that I think are really important to note. When he says knowledge, he means something different from what we typically recognize as knowledge. He's not straight up talking about epistemology. You wouldn't take Lacan's books and put him like on a shelf next to other epistemologists. He's not cracking that nut. What he's trying to say is, listen, I'm going to do something totally different with knowledge. And what I'm telling you is at the start of this seminar, 
what he's doing that's different with knowledge is he's shifting the field of knowledge from an established set of understandings, what we typically know as an epistemology, what we know, right? That's what the question of epistemology is. Ontology is a question of what is. Axiology is a question of what should we do, the ethical moral, moral question. And epistemology is a question of what can we know. And Lacan is shifting the question from what can we know to how can we know. How is knowledge developed? In other words, knowledge here is not a set, stable collection of things known. Knowledge for Lacan is a process that is always working at an outer limit where the unknown pops. It could be an inner limit, a hole, if you will, within the field of knowledge where the unknown pops. But it's always at this limit, on the verge of a beyond, that he sees knowledge finding its true operation. And that's what he's up to here. Knowledge is not a stable collection of entities or events. Knowledge for Lacan is a process. It's an operation, which is why I wanted to start by telling you about objet A. Yeah, it's objet A, object little a. But what we're really looking at is not its objectivity, but its operativity, how it works. The same is true of the big barred other. Don't ask yourself what it is. Ask yourself how it works. That is what it is. It only exists at the level of its operation. The same is true of objaya. It works when it works. Here, knowledge is the topic. And he's saying we're going to look at it totally different. And notice the shift to Freud here. As a general rule of thumb, whenever Lacan seems to fall back on Freud... Rest assured, that's where Lacan is making his most adventurous and truly Lacanian breakthroughs. He does a lot of this in the early and mid part of his career, when he's a little less sure of where he's getting and what he actually has on his hands. And he'll say, oh, you know, all I'm doing is returning to the meaning of Freud. If you read Freud alongside Lacan, if you read Lacan and then go back to the passages in Freud that he's referring to, then you'll see just how smart this motherfucker is. Then you'll see just how careful of a reader he is, but also how strong of a reader Lacan is. Lacan will take one simple usage of a verb in Freud that may have been glossed over by every other reader of Freud, no dummies, by the way, and he'll take that and turn it into a constitutive concept, the foundational term, I don't know, in some sort of a clinical structure. Lacan does a lot of this and then says, I'm just getting this straight from Freud. Yes, he's a good reader of Freud, but he's also a strong and creative reader of Freud. Maybe with a bit of anxiety of influence, if you follow that Harold Bloom tradition. But I would suggest that there's something in Lacan that whenever he's ready to make a big breakthrough insight, he always wants to say, and it's not me. I'm just telling you what Freud actually said. So be aware of these moments. That was the other thing I wanted to say here. The field that Freud's words dare to confront. It's a breakthrough moment here, rethinking knowledge. And as you know, a rethinking of knowledge is kind of where Lacan begins the 1970s. Seminar 20, mm -hmm. knowledge. What is the upshot of all that these words articulate? Not knowledge, but confusion. Well then, from this very confusion, we have to draw some lessons.
since it is a question of limits and of leaving the system, leaving it by virtue of what? By virtue of a thirst for meaning. As if the system needed it. The system needs meaning? Hmm. Check it out. The system doesn't need it. But we feeble beings, as we will keep on discovering for ourselves at every turning point over the course of this year, we need meaning. And then he's off. He says, all right, then here's one. And then he's off to the races again. But this thirst for meaning, it's interesting how Lacan puts it here. The system doesn't need meaning. Knowledge as a process doesn't need meaning. That's why I specify that the repetitive logic of the knowledge process that Lacan is developing here at the level of the big barred other and its various subsets, read S2s, I say they're goaded by completion. They're not drawn to meaning as operational structures. They are drawn towards wholeness, towards completion and goaded by it, because this is fundamentally an impossible objective. They'll never reach it, but they're lured to it, the same way that Zeno's paradox unfolds. The thirst for meaning is ours. The repetitive necessity, structural, logical necessity of the knowledge process as it unfolds, it's not a search for meaning. There's no seeking happening at the level of that structure. It's just something that goes, something that operates, something that operates without any particular objective, but always chomping towards a certain horizon. Let me ask you, is it any coincidence that the meaning that Lacan immediately turns to after this statement is that of Trieb, that of the drive. Is it any coincidence that he's speaking about a repetitive necessity built into a structural logic known as the big barred other, goaded by a wholeness it will never reach, driven by something other than intention, other than a thirst for meaning, driven simply by operational logics? Is it any coincidence that he then turns immediately to the drive? And not just to talk about how Treve has been misunderstood in Freud's work, but to present us with the death drive. So let's be as clear as we can here. The jouissance of the big bard other is not at or beyond the limit of knowledge. Don't get it twisted. The jouissance that the big barred other experiences, and it's an interesting and almost awkward thing to say about the big barred other, because we know that it takes shape around an evacuation of jouissance, the same way that the, su the barred subject takes shape around an evacuation of jouissance. That's what these entities are. They are like, they are structures that are built around constitutive voids, 
holes or furrows or hollows, hollows in them that condition them. And they are both hollows, evacuations, holes, signaling the subtraction of jouissance. So here we have a very awkward statement that the big barred other nevertheless has access to a certain type of jouissance. Yes, jouissance is evacuated from the field of the big barred other that the signifier causes to exist, causes to appear. But nevertheless, here Lacan is talking about knowledge as a process being a pathway to jouissance available to the big barred other. And that's the point I want to make here. The jouissance of the big barred other here is not at or beyond this limit of knowledge where knowledge opens up into the unknown. On the contrary, the jouissance that Lacan is talking about here exists in and as the iterative extension of that limit in the knowledge process. This process of ever-enlarging, ever-engulfing, ever-incomplete, yet growing for that very reason, S2s. So, let's be as clear as we can, diagrammatically even. Close your eyes and just imagine this. The jouissance of the big barred other is not at the outer limit of its operational structure. This iterative topology of the subject where one encompasses the other. It's not at the outer limit of that topology that the big other experiences jouissance. It experiences jouissance in and as the operational repetition of that topology. It's between each instance of the same topology in that measure that we use objet a to designate that you see the jouissance of the big barred other playing out. And that's important here. It's not at or beyond the limit of knowledge that we see the jouissance of the big barred other popping. We see it popping in the structure of knowledge as it unfolds, iteratively, across different experiences, entities, events, objects, individual organisms whose parts keep dropping out as corporal scraps or remainders from the knowledge process. What the big other gets off on, in other words, is itself. It gets off on being an active operational logic whose basic structure, Lacan is here telling us, is repetition. It works repetitively, logically repetitively, where the same structural logic is occurring over and over again. That is the big other. It exists as that operation and it enjoys at the level of that operation. This is why he can say the system cares not about meaning. It doesn't have the same thirst that we do. It cares only about its continued operativity because that's what it enjoys. It enjoys at the level of the repetition of the exact same structure over and over again. I hope this is clear enough. All we really want to do is shift our perspective a little bit on knowledge <clears throat> from a stable set of events or entities to a process, a procedure, whose logical structure is repetitive. It repeatedly 
reenacts the same structure as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's why Lacan has this image of the Trojan horse. You see it at the start of Seminar 17. You also see it popping in Seminar 16. This would be a Trojan horse that can just swallow more and more and more people without ever, I think the word Lacan uses, is disengorging them. The image of the Trojan horse that you see here at the start of Seminar 17 harkens back to that of Seminar 16. And the image that there that Lacan has is of a Trojan horse that can just continually swallow signifiers and get bigger and bigger and bigger without ever coughing any up. It doesn't result, in other words, in the sacking of the town when the soldiers crawl out of the belly of the horse at night and then take everything over. Nah, man, the Trojan horse Lacan has in mind here is one that just keeps gorging itself on signifiers and never coughs one up. This is what he means by the knowledge process. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, gorging itself on new entities, events, dropouts, remainders at the outer limit of its operation. The big barred other is imperial, my friends. The big barred other is exactly what Badiou means by the state. That's where we're at here at the start of Seminar 17. Let's see if we can be even more precise. There's the big other, which you just heard Lacan very clearly say on 15. There is no big other. <clears throat> I told you last time, he never tires of saying this. He, it's like he doesn't even think, and it's still at the same time, it seems like people have missed this thought. Maybe that's why he keeps repeating it. Maybe that's why we've forgotten it, because he keeps repeating it. The big other doesn't exist. Big barred others, A with a slash through it, exist. So do their excised subsets, little s2s. Those exist. And so think of these two columns here. You've got the big other, which doesn't exist, and then you've got the big barred other, coupled with s2s that do exist. Lacan wants to be very precise in distinguishing these two entities. And I think we can distinguish the big other from the big barred other by looking at what he does on page 31. Page 31 is a terrific one for us. One of the things he distinguishes there is between knowledge of everything and the all-knowing. So, the big other is knowledge of everything. It's a collection, a totality that has the status of completion. It knows everything. When we think of knowledge traditionally, what we think of is that image of the big other. Some place, some field where everything is known. Knowledge of everything. Isn't this precisely what in the Christian West, we assign to God omniscience, all-knowing, <clears throat> heaven, God, and the like. These are places where we see a knowledge of everything, or at least where we fantasize of that, because that's just what this is. The big other doesn't exist except as a fantasy. This is why Lacan, on page 33, very precisely quote him on this shit. 
speaks about the fantasy of a totality slash knowledge. The fantasy of a totality dash knowledge. And I want you to hear exactly where he puts this. If there is knowledge that is not known, remember he's talking about the unconscious, we'll come to it, as I have already said, it is instituted at the level of S2, which is the one I call the other signifier. This other signifier is not alone. Now, that is just talking about the differential relation between signifiers that constitute language. And you heard me last time say that the minimum you can have is two, which means the minimum is actually three because the differential relation between the two is itself an entity to be counted, right? This S2, he's saying, is just an other signifier, an other signifier relative to another signifier. This signifier is not alone. There have to be more than one. You can never just have one signifier on its own. It doesn't work that way. In order for signifiers to carry meaning, they have to rely on other signifiers, different signifiers, and thus to maintain a differential relation between other signifiers in order for them to signify. A signifier cannot signify itself. This is what he's alluding to here, the same shit we were talking about last time. Notice, though, where he goes immediately, without a break, not even a paragraph break. The stomach of the big other, and he reiterates, the big other, is full of them, full of these signifiers, these S1s, these S2s, these S3s. This other signifier is not alone. The stomach of the big other, the big other is full of them. This stomach is like some monstrous Trojan horse that provides the foundations for the fantasy of a totality knowledge. It is, however, clear that its function entails that something comes and strikes it from without. Otherwise, nothing will ever emerge from it, and Troy will never be taken. At stake here, when you start seeing these S1s and these S2s linking up and so on and so forth, is this monstrous, fictitious image of the big other as an all-engulfing, ever-engorging Trojan horse. And Lacan's very clear about this. This is the fantasy of a totality knowledge. If you've got ears to hear, this is precisely what I mean in this series when I talk about the fundamental fantasy, being that the big other exists. It's that we have a fundamental fantasy, each of us, that there is this space, place, possessor, if you will, of absolute knowledge, of totality knowledge, as Lacan calls it here. And the translator even gives us the French there so that you can rest assured how it links up with what he previously referred to as the knowledge of everything. This, however, according to Lacan, doesn't exist except as fantasy. Now, he gives us a couple of reasons about why this totality knowledge, this knowledge of everything, doesn't exist, except as fantasy. First and foremost, you got to start with nature. Whenever it comes to Lacan, it's best to just start with nature. If Lacan had his druthers and he were to live on, you know what he'd be doing right now? He'd be eating gummies and watching Animal Planet. Guaranteed. 
Guaranteed, this dude would have absolutely loved the amount of nature documentaries and nature television that's out there. Anytime Lacan starts talking about Freud, rest assured there's a big insight coming. Anytime Lacan starts talking about animals, insects, rest assured you're about to see some truth. Notice what he says on page 33. First and foremost, on 33 in the paragraph you're about to hear, once more, you hear an allusion, a prefiguration of some of the work that he's going to do in seminars 19 and 20. Work around the non-rapport, the lack of a sexual relationship that he starts in seminar 14 and then fully develops and articulates in seminar 20. Part of the reason why people struggle with seminar 20, I think, is because they haven't read 14 where Lacan basically starts talking about there being no sexual act and starts developing this thought. If you just read with Lacan, as we do in this series, none of his insights are particularly challenging because he's such an organic, accumulating thinker that if you just follow along with him, you can arrive at the same insights that he had arrives at. The problem is when you just are thrown into, I don't know, a class or thrown into an impulse to sit down with Seminar 20 and just read the thing out of the gates. It's not impossible if you have adequate training for that, whether it's in the history of ideas, intellectual history, history of thought, or health, psychoanalysis. But it's important, I think, to note that a lot of Lacan's big breakthrough ideas that become the bumper stickers that Lacanians bandy about and then subsequently misunderstand for the rest of their careers they come usually across multiple seminars where Lacan scales up those ideas. And that's kind of the real tragedy when you look around at a lot of secondary literature where people cite Lacan. And one of the reasons why we don't spend much time working with secondary literature around Lacan. Because so often people start with the bumper sticker insight and then have a couple of well-trod quotations to support that insight, but don't have the understanding of what that shit means or where it came from. And it comes across very clearly in just how confusing and convoluted and confounding secondary literature on Lacan often is. It's confusing and confounding because it's confused. It's confounded because it hasn't done the work of sitting down with Lacan and reading the ramp up of ideas. You could say the same thing about Hegel. When I studied the phenomenology of spirit, back when I was a younger man, I remember distinctly every single time I would resume my study of the phenomenology. See, that's the thing. You can't just sit down in a day and read the phenomenology. It's a long-ass book. You have to return to the phenomenology. But every time you return to the phenomenology, it's not as simple as opening the book to where you last stopped in the last paragraph and just picking up right there where you left off. At least for me, the way that the phenomenology started to click for me was by the fact that every time I resumed my study of the phenomenology, I had to start 20, 30 pages before my bookmark and get back in the flow and get back in the groove with Hegel. Hegel is a fluid thinker like that. He's a time-based thinker like that. Sound becomes the dominant medium here. Versus someone like, I don't know, Walter Benjamin. Benjamin is a sight-based thinker. 
He doesn't think at the level of sound. He thinks at the level of sight. And his texts don't work according to flows. His texts work according to images, snapshots, clips. That's why you see lightning being a dominant image in Benjamin's work, because it's all about that seizure of a moment, a seizure of time that occurs when lightning strikes and the whole landscape is illuminated before returning to darkness precisely 0.3 seconds later. That's not how Hegel thinks. Hegel unfolds his thinking phenomenologically, this is what he means by phenomenology, one step at a time. But it's tough to just throw yourself right in there at one particular moment and think that you're going to have an understanding of what the fuck is happening. The same is true of Lacan. Lacan is a sound-based thinker. That is what's at stake when he says that speech is the centerpiece of psychoanalysis. What he means when he says that an analyst needs to be able to hear the analyzant's speech like listening to a musical score. The emphasis on hearing and sound in Lacan couples with his emphasis on speech as the only medium for psychoanalytic experience, right? But it also captures something about how this guy thinks, why his concepts continually change, why you can have an important essay like that of Jacqueline Miller on paradigms of jouissance. Here are six paradigms of jouissance, six totally distinct, radically interesting, unique theories of jouissance just in Lacan's work. And Miller is right. This shit holds water. If I'm not mistaken, what we're doing right now is paradigm five. <laughs> there are four more before it. And Miller's point is that when someone asks you, what does Lacan mean by jouissance? You have to ask, which Lacan? What period are you talking about? Which text are you talking about? Beware anybody that can just come out and give you a clear, crisp, one-line definition of jouissance. Rest assured, it's a one-line definition of jouissance that is accurate, perhaps, but only ever accurate sufficient to one particular instance of that term in Lacan's work. An understanding of jouissance would be one like Miller's, which would have to be developed across Lacan's career, so that you can see how this term changes. And what he's doing here with jouissance, my point is this, has to be linked up with the previous paradigm, that around the drive. Again, no coincidence that he's queuing up the drive here, just when he's starting to talk about the other's jouissance. Now, that tangent may seem like a spin-out from the topic we just had before us, but it is not. Because here on page 33, what you see is an opportunity to discover one of those moments where Lacan is developing a thought, not the first time he started this thought, a thought that would later culminate in a famous bumper sticker that everybody likes to talk a lot about and very few people fucking understand. Here's one of those moments. Page 33. The paragraph begins, Since we have signifiers. Feel me now. Since we have signifiers, we must understand one another. And this is precisely why we don't understand one another. Signifiers are not made for sexual relations. Once the human being is speaking, it's stuffed. It's the end of this perfection, this harmony in copulation which, in any case, is impossible to find anywhere in nature. So here you 
Here, Lacan, giving you a very clear statement about why there is no sexual rapport, why, he says in 14, there is no sexual act. Why there isn't a sexual act is because there are signifiers. We'll come to that when we come to that. For now, I want to get to the note about nature. Anytime Lacan drops some shit about nature, rest assured he's going to give you some truth. Fuck the sexual rapport. Let's talk about nature. Impossible to find perfection, harmony, in copulation in nature. Check this out. Nature presents an infinite number of species of it, which, moreover, for the majority, do not include any copulation. In nature, in other words, what Lacan's saying is that there ain't no such thing as copulation for so many species. Why should we think that ours would allow for perfection, wholeness, and completion, and the like, when in nature you see a lot of species that don't even track copulation at all? This shows how little it is part of nature's intentions that this form a whole, a sphere. Now, you can think back to Aristophanes. You can think back to Lacan's critique of this ancient theory of love, where you've got two halves coming together, and they make this complete thing, and you get these fucking Jerry Maguire idiocies. Oh, you complete me. You can hear him riffing on that and ripping on that if you want where you have this two holes that make a sphere. And Lacan calls bullshit on all that, right? That's what the sexual non-rapport is about. But what Lacan wants to bring our attention to here and now is that the type of wholeness, completion, perfection, harmony, all-togetherness, omniscience that we fantasize about at the level of this totality knowledge that we assign to the gods, that we assign to the professor, that we assign to the analyst as a subject supposed to know. Lacan saying, you need only look to nature to see an infinite number of examples where that type of wholeness is completely non-existent. How little that type of wholeness, that fantasy of totality knowledge, how little it is part of nature's intentions. Nature does not intend to form a whole, a sphere, a complete collection of anything. There is no universe of discourse. Just like that, there is no universe of nature. Now, remember when Lacan says universe, he's thinking etymologically. A turning into one a versing of something into an unus, universalization. He means that you cannot create oneness. But again, with Lacan, you always have to give the idea another turn. No, that's the only thing you can do with oneness, is create it. Oneness is an effect. Oneness is a product. Oneness is something you can do with a more original state of multiplicity. Isn't this precisely how we get Alain Badiou and his great thinking around the one and why you can hear Lacan say things like there is no more difficult thought than the one and why Badiou would come along and agree and add love to the mix. Badiou says the two most difficult thoughts in Lacan are the one and love. And you need to look at a paragraph like this to see how they're connected around the forming of a whole or a sphere a oneness that we expect from our relationships just as we expect from the big other. 
And Lacan wants to let you know that that shit don't exist. Does that lead to nihilism? No. Does that open the door to hedonism? Sometimes, but not if you play it right. Instead, it opens the door to a new type of love. A love not based on wholeness and spherical completion, but a love that is based on incompletion. A love that is based on particularity, partiality. A love based on two subjects coming together in an experience of lack. Mutual lack, which doesn't mean the same lacks, but the fact that we both lack. That together we never make a whole. Together all we do is share our holes with each other. I didn't come here to talk to you all about that. I want to talk about the big other not existing, not even in nature. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's another reason why this fantasy of totality knowledge doesn't exist. It's conceptual and it's clinical, and we call it the unconscious. Lacan also wants to use the unconscious as a way of reminding and showing everybody that the big other's pursuit of omniscience is only ever our fundamental fantasy. There is no big other, and there is no such thing as omniscience. Knowledge works because it is incomplete. Check it out. The best stuff on the unconscious starts for us on page 30. It also gives us a little taste of the master. The enigma of the master's function does not therefore reveal itself immediately, Lacan says at the top of page 30. I will point out, because it is already on our path, a path that we do not have to pretend we have discovered, and which is not that of the theory of the unconscious, that it is not at all self-evident that all knowledge, by virtue of being knowledge, is known as knowledge. There is a field of knowledge that we do not understand as knowledge, qua conscious understanding of entities and events. What we discover in even the slightest bit of psychoanalytic experience is indeed of the order of knowledge, S1, and not of acquaintance or representation. Don't trip up there. Don't trip up around the knowledge definitions. It is very precisely a question of something that links one signifier to another signifier in a relationship of reason. Now, I'll let you wrestle with that paragraph so that we can stay the course here and look at the unconscious relative to this knowledge. Bottom of the page. Knowledge, then, is placed at the center in the dock by psychoanalytic experience. This fact alone imposes on us a duty to question, which has no reason to limit its field. In short, the idea that knowledge can, in any way or any time, even as a hope for the future, form a closed whole, W-H-O-L-E, now there's something that didn't have to wait for psychoanalysis for it to appear questionable. The big other doesn't exist. The existence of the unconscious, as we see cropping up in analytic experience, is further proof of this. So if you ain't got eyes and ears to see and hear how nature operates, perhaps, dear Lacanians, you have eyes and ears to recall how the unconscious operates relative to this knowledge. The unconscious as 
an unknown field of knowledge that proves that the basic idea we often have of knowledge is false. It proves that there's no way knowledge can in any way or at any time, even as a hope for the future, form a closed whole. In other words, a totality knowledge. As we hear Lacan spinning it out two pages later on page 33. And Lacan's point is that you didn't even need psychoanalysis for that insight. Nevertheless, he brings it to our attention, and I think it's important for us to hold in mind. Now, let's shift to the other side of this column. No longer talking about the big other as this fantasy figuration and blah, blah, blah. Let's think about what does exist. Big, barred others and their excised subsets known as S2s, these knowledges, these discourses, these disciplines. Here what you have, Lacan says, is not an experience or a fantasy of knowledge of everything, but instead, he says on page 31, right alongside his queuing up of knowledge of everything, this factor of the all-knowing, the all-knowing, not the same as knowledge of everything, is this factor known as the all-knowing. Now, it's a little vague at this point what he means by the all-knowing. Let's see what we can make of this. All right. The barred other and its subsets known as S2, these are not collections. These are collectivizing operations. These are not totalities. These are totalizing operations. These are operations that are ever incomplete, yet goaded by the promise of completion. And here, notice the cons putting it. As a hope for the future. There is a hope for a future built in, if you can talk about this as hope, to the structural logic of the big barred other. The big barred other is goaded with perfection. What my man Kenneth Burke would refer to as rotten with perfection. Knowledges of every stripe, because they are only ever procedural processes, operations, are rotten with perfection, goaded by perfection. They exist only in incomplete states, in states of incompletion. And each state of incompletion begets another bigger, perhaps less incomplete state. But again, remember the paradox of Zeno. The distance between two points, cut that shit in half. Now take the remaining distance and cut that shit in half. Now take the remaining distance and cut that shit in half. Zeno's paradox in this case, Zeno had a lot of paradoxes, man, unfortunately, but in this case, it shows that no matter how close you get to completion, to your destination, you will always be at some remove from it. There will always be a minimum irreducible distance between you and your destination. Objea is the measure of that shifting distance. So if you think about Zeno's paradox, Objea tells us it's this long. Cut it in half. Objea tells you now it's this long. Cut it in half. Objea tells you it's this long. The point of Objea is there will never be a point at which there is no distance between you and your destination. It doesn't work that way. You've heard me rail on about why it doesn't work that way. Here, what we have is something that works by not working. We have a knowing 
process, a, a collectivizing, totalizing process that works only insofar as its work remains undone, incomplete. And its logic, again, is one of repetitive necessity. The structure of the big barred other is iterative. It works by repeating itself in progressively more encompassing instantiations of the very same structure. Let's be categorical. The big barred other is a perennial means without end because the end that goads it is impossible. Completion, wholeness, spherical love, call it what you will. It's impossible, which is why I can say with my man, Kenneth Burke, that the big barred other, like all of its subsets, is rotten with perfection. We now have to shift to the topic of the master and the slave and the philosopher, which is the prototype for the university. This is going to become an important topic. That's going to become the central topic, I would suggest, of chapter two. What happens with knowledge in the relationship between the master, the university, and the slave. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.